The Murder of Tutankhamun, A True Story, by Bob Breyer. Chapter 1. The King Must Die. We possess a remarkable amount of evidence about Tutankhamun, enough to recreate what his last days may have been like. So let's start with a fictional account, but one that is probably very close to the truth. Sometime in late autumn, during the 18th year of his life, Tutankhamun went to bed alone. Although peasant husbands and wives slept in the same room, Egyptian pharaohs lived in separate palaces from those of their queen and ladies of the harem. Conjugal visits were one thing, sleep was another. Tutankhamun reposed in a large room, sparsely furnished, a few stools, tables, and a single wood bed with feet shaped like lion's paws. Fish, duck, and marsh grasses painted on the room's plastered walls glowed spectrally in the dim light. In the depth of this night, the door slowly, silently opened, just wide enough for a single man to creep through before closing it behind him. Somehow he had slipped past the sentries. Had they been told to look the other way? Stealthily, the night intruder made his way to Pharaoh's bed, the sound of his feet perhaps obscured by the drip, drip of a water clock. He found the king sleeping on his side, his head supported by an alabaster headrest. From under his clothes, the man drew out a heavy object, possibly an Egyptian mace that joined a solid three-inch stone to the end of a substantial two-foot stick. After a single deep breath, he swung the heavy object at Tutankhamun's skull. Waiting just a moment for the sudden sound in the night to be forgotten, the intruder retraced his steps through the royal bedchamber, out the door, and stole through the palace to the safety of night. The next morning, servants discovered the unconscious but not yet dead pharaoh and quickly summoned the vizier, I, and Tutankhamun's wife, Ankhus and Amun. A priest physician skilled in head injuries was ordered from the temple. The physician had seen many trauma injuries. Blocks of stone sometimes fell on workmen during construction. Infantrymen received blows to the head, but this was the pharaoh. The physician must have been very careful what he said or did. He instructed his assistant to shave Pharaoh's head so a proper diagnosis could be made. As the bronze blade removed the fine dark hair, the surgeon was already thinking about the consequences of treatment, both for the Pharaoh and for his own career. If he took decisive action and Tutankhamun died, he could be blamed. Now the head was shaved, revealing one wound, a large, warm, swollen mass. It was in an unusual place for such an injury, at the back of the head, where the neck joins the skull. The great surgical papyrus did not describe how to treat such an injury. The blow had caused unconsciousness, but only a slight fracture to the skull. There were no bone fragments that must be removed. Relieved, the surgeon replaces his bronze probe and tweezers in their wooden case. Still, blood is oozing from the pharaoh's nostrils, a sign that the meninges, the skin enclosing the brain, has been damaged. I, the prime minister, stand silently next to the bed, calm. 
weighing what the Pharaoh's death will mean to Egypt and himself. Ancus and Amun, frightened, looks to the physician for his prognosis. He's been trained to give one of three responses. Number one, this is an ailment which I will treat. Two, this is an ailment with which I will contend. And three, this is an ailment not to be treated. If he says the ailment can be treated, he implies that the treatment will be successful. If he instead says he will merely contend with it, he implies an uncertain outcome. The physician quickly evaluates the situation. With no splinters to remove, no bones to set, there was little he could do physically for the king. To say that he will treat the ailment asserts that the king will survive, and of this he is not sure. Should Tutankhamun die, the physician will be blamed. There are only two real alternatives, and given the importance of the patient, it is safer to say that this is an illness not to be treated. Better to hand the fate of the king over to the gods. The predicament faced by this priest physician was no different from modern physicians called to treat a famous patient. Doctors in emergency rooms around the world have observed and named it the famous patient syndrome. When confronted with a famous patient, medical personnel are afraid to act quickly to do instinctively what they have been trained to do. Junior staff members defer to senior staff members. Discussions take place before actions are taken. Tutankhamun was probably not the first ruler to suffer the consequences of his exalted position, and he was certainly not the last. Abraham Lincoln may have died because of his fame. After the president was shot in the head, the young surgeon attending him at Ford's Theater did everything right. He examined the whole entry with his finger, determined there was no exit hole, and let the president rest. Then the Surgeon General was summoned, while President Lincoln was removed to a nearby boarding house. The Surgeon General was a bureaucrat who had not treated a patient for years, but he immediately took control of Lincoln's treatment. He inserted a probe into the entry hole and slid it in, almost up to Lincoln's eyes. The Surgeon General did not know that the last medical wisdom taught in medical schools was not to probe. The brain is so soft, you can't tell if you're following the path of the bullet or causing additional damage. Recent reevaluation of the case suggests that Lincoln might have survived with the bullet lodged in his brain. He was a victim of famous patient syndrome. So the surgeon priest turned to Ancus and Amun and spoke the very words she feared. This is an ailment not to be treated. As Ancus and Amun sobbed, the surgeon's assistant was instructed to clear the king's nostrils of blood. The pharaoh breathed more easily now, lying peacefully on his low bed. Magician healers would be called to assist the king. By afternoon, the healers had gathered the ingredients for their poultice. Equal parts of berry of coriander, berry of the poppy plant, wormwood, berry of the sames plant, berry of the juniper plant. Mixed with honey, it formed a paste that they spread on the wound and covered with a square of finely woven linen on which had been drawn the Eye of Horus symbol. Horus the falcon god had lost his eye in the battle with Seth, but it was magically regenerated by Thoth, god of magic. The markings around a falcon's eye became a sign for healing. For the first few days, there was optimism. 
Tutankhamun briefly regained consciousness and was able to eat. Akhenaten brought him chopped figs mixed with eggs because eggs had regenerative properties. The magician healer placed flour of egg, powdered eggshells, in Tutankhamun's wine so the damaged skull would knit smooth like an eggshell. Yet as days became weeks, the pharaoh, drifting in and out of consciousness, weakened. His vision blurred and the pain in his head became almost unbearable, as if something were pressing on every part of his skull. To dull the pain, Ancus and Amun brought more and more of his favorite wine made from grapes from his own vineyards. When winter came, Tutankhamun lapsed into final unconsciousness and could receive tiny amounts of wine through a straw, only with difficulty. The wailing started with Ancus and Amun, who was with Tutankhamun when he died, spread through the female servants in the palace and across the river to Thebes, uniting rich and poor in the primal ritual mourning cry that told Osiris, god of the dead, to expect another westerner. Within a few hours of the shock, I began the plans to prepare Tutankhamun's burial. Our account above of Tutankhamun's death is fiction, but is based on evidence that has survived 3,300 years since his death. We are in an even better position to reconstruct his burial. The tomb of Tutankhamun has been prepared for himself next to his grandfather's in the western spur of the Valley of the Kings. It was far short of completion when the boy king died. There was, however, a nearly complete tomb in the main valley that had not been used. Originally intended for a private person, a rare but not unprecedented honor, I decided to appropriate this tomb for his pharaoh. Artists commenced painting appropriate scenes on the walls immediately. There was no time to carve the scenes. As the tomb was being readied, embalmers prepared Tutankhamun's body for eternity. Mummification was primarily a physical process, but every stage of the embalming was accompanied by religious rituals. The most important step was to remove all moisture from the body as quickly as possible. Bacteria need moisture to destroy tissue. If there is no water, the body will not decay. Both the brain and the internal organs are extremely moist, so to avoid putrefaction, they had to be removed soon after death. When Tutankhamun's body was brought to the royal embalmers, it was placed on an alabaster mummification table, inclined so it was at work, so that as work proceeded on the body, the fluids would run off into a basin below. The brain was removed by inserting a long wire into the nostril, breaking through the ethmoid bone into the cranium. The wire was then rotated, used as a whisk, to break down the brain tissue into a semi-liquid state that would drain out through the nostrils when the body was turned upside down. The embalmers preserved almost every part of the body so Tutankhamun would be complete when he resurrected in the next world. However, they discarded the brain, unaware of its function. Egyptians believe that you thought with your heart, not your brain, since it is the heart that beats repeatedly when someone is excited, not the brain. In the Bible, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let the Israelites go, we are told 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened. After Tutankhamun's brain was removed and discarded, an incision was made in the lower left side of his abdomen so the internal organs could be reached. The stomach, liver, intestines, and kidneys were carefully removed and placed in shallow bowls. Later, the dissected organs were deposited in four miniature gold coffins in preparation for the day the king would resurrect in the next world. Only his heart was left in the body so that he would be able to remember and recite the magical spells that would reanimate his corpse. Even after the brain and internal organs were removed, considerable moisture still remained locked in the body's soft tissues. To eliminate this, the embalmers covered Tutankhamun's body with natron, a naturally occurring compound of sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, and sodium chloride, basically baking soda and salt. After the body has rested for 35 days in natron, almost all its water had been leached out. The mummy now weighed less than 50 pounds and was ready for wrapping. As each bandage was applied, a priest wearing the mask of Anubis, the jackal, the god of embalming, read magical spells that would ensure Tutankhamun's preservation and resurrection. The priest placed more than 150 pieces of jewelry and magical amulets within the linen bandages to ensure the boy king's immortality. As the embalmers practiced their art, master craftsmen throughout the land worked to prepare his funerary goods. There were wooden shrines to be carved and gilded, a gold mask and coffins to be fashioned, furniture, linens, clothing, and jewelry to be assembled. Preparation of the Ushapti's figures alone were a major undertaking. These hundreds of little servant figurines were expected to magically come alive and serve Tutankhamun in the next world. Each one an individual sculpture in wood or stone carved in the likeness of Tutankhamun. The figures were mummy form in shape, the image of Osiris, the god of the dead. Because Egypt was an agrarian society, the work in the next world would be farming, so the Ushaptis held agricultural implements in their hands. Tutankhamun had 413 Ushaptis, 365 workers, one for each day of the year, 36 overseers, one for each gang of 10 workers, and an additional 12 monthly overseers. There must have been a panic in the workshops of Egypt as craftsmen worked in teams throughout the night to prepare for the burial of the pharaoh. Maya, the treasurer, commissioned a beautiful miniature wooden sculpture of Tutankhamun on a funerary couch holding a tiny gold crook and flail so the gods would know he was a great king. Along the side of the sculpture, an inscription proclaimed Maya's devotion to his young pharaoh. Made by the servant who is beneficial to his lord, doing what he says, who does not allow anything to go wrong, whose face is cheerful when he does it, with a loving heart as a thing profitable to his lord. At some point in the preparation of Tutankhamun's funerary goods, time ran out. The 70 days had elapsed. The embalmer's work and all the coffins were complete, but other ritual objects simply couldn't be finished on time. So the tomb of Tutankhamun's brother, Smenkare, was opened and the miniature coffins that held his internal organs 
were reused for Tutankhamun. Inside each coffin, inscribed in gold, is a prayer from the Book of the Dead, a collection of about 200 spells, incantations, prayers, and hymns. The prayers inside refer to Tutankhamun, but beneath his cartouche are traces of the name Smenkare, his brother. Seventy days after Tutankhamun's death, the funeral procession gathered on the west bank of Thebes to conduct his mummy to its house of eternity. The body was placed on a sled, and a wooden shrine draped with garland was placed over it. Across the top of the shrine, two rows of beautifully carved and painted wooden cobras reared up to protect Tutankhamun on his journey to the underworld. The sled was pulled by the palace officials. Pentu and Usermont, the ministers of Upper and Lower Egypt, wore the distinctive robes of their office and were joined by ten other officials, all wearing white mourning bands around their heads. As the procession slowly made its way over the barren land toward the Valley of the Kings, the women wailed, tore their garments, and threw sand on their head in the traditional gestures of mourning. Among them, but feeling very alone, was Ancus and Amun. When pallbearers reached the tomb, the procession paused. In the course of wrapping the mummy, Tutankhamun's mouth and nose had been covered. Now, before he entered the tomb for eternity, a ceremony was performed to magically open his mouth so Tutankhamun would be able to breathe and say the magical spells of the Book of the Dead. The pallbearers, joined by the priest and members of the funeral procession, performed the opening of the mouth ceremony for Tutankhamun. More a mystery play than a religious ritual, a dozen participants were required for the performance. The officiating priest held a papyrus describing how things should proceed. A small group of the officials played roles of the guards of Horus, who would help Tutankhamun be resurrected like Osiris in the next world. The area in front of the tomb where the play was to be performed was purified with water from four different bases, each representing one of the four corners of the earth. Four burners holding incense were lit and various gods were invoked. A ritual slaughter was performed, commemorating the battle in which Horus avenged Osiris's death. In the myth, Seth's conspirators, after dismembering Osiris's corpse, attempted to escape Horus by changing into various animals, but Horus caught them and cut off their heads. Thus, at the opening of the mouth ceremony, various animals were ritually killed. Two bulls, one for the south and one for the north, gazelles, and ducks. When the bull of the south was slaughtered, one of the legs was cut off and, along with the heart, offered to the mummy. By sympathetic magic, Tutankhamun became Osiris. The sacrificial killing of the animals represented the conspirators who tried but failed to destroy the body of Osiris and assured that the body of Tutankhamun would remain safe from such an attack. The slaughtered animals provided food for Tutankhamun's long journey. The high priest touched the mouth of the mummy with the leg of the bull, and then to, then an assistant came forward with a ritual inst- instrument shaped like an adze. Touching the mouth of the mummy with its implement, the priest recited, Thy mouth was closed, but I have set in order 
for thee thy mouth and thy teeth. I open for thee thy mouth. I open for thee thy two eyes. I have opened thy mouth with the instrument of Anubis, with iron implement, with which the mouths of the gods were opened. Horus, open the mouth. Horus, open the mouth. Horus hath opened the mouth of the dead, as he in times of old opened the mouth of Osiris with the iron, which came forth from Set. With the iron instrument with which he opened the mouths of the gods, he hath opened thy mouth with it. The deceased shall walk and speak, and his body shall be with the great company of all the gods in the great house of the aged one in Anu, and he shall receive the Uret crown from Horus, the lord of mankind. While this ritual was being performed, Tutankhamun's body was resting inside the shrine on the sled. So a statue of Tutankhamun, one of the two life-size guardian statues, almost exactly the height of Tutankhamun, were used instead. At the conclusion of the ritual, the priest raised the adze and touched it to Tutankhamun's mouth, uttering the smell, the spell that would give the young king breath in the next world. You are young again. You live again. You are young again. You live again forever. Now he was ready for immortality. The pallbearers carried the body of Osiris Tutankhamun, he was now a westerner like Osiris, down the 13 steps leading to the tomb. At the bottom, they turned right toward the burial chamber. On their left side, they could see three five-foot-high ceremonial beds on which various rituals had been performed for Tutankhamun during the 70 days of mummification. At the corners of the head end of one bed were two beautifully carved hippopotamus heads covered in gold. The second bore the head of a cow with a sun disc between its horns. The third lion's heads. These were the gods who controlled whether Tutankhamun would enter the next world. As the pallbearers slowly carried the mummy to the burial chamber, they took quick sideways glances, trying to take it all in. The burial treasures of a king. Waiting for them in the burial chamber was a rectangular stone sarcophagus containing three coffins, one inside the other like Russian dolls. Their lids lay on the floor. The pharaoh was placed inside the innermost one. While the lector priest recited prayers, unguents were poured on the body to perfume Tutankhamun's way to the next world. Then the lid of the innermost coffin was placed over Tutankhamun, sending him into darkness, the last time anyone would see his face for 35 centuries. The lid to the middle coffin was placed on its lower half, and finally the outermost coffin lid was lowered into place. Each coffin bore a likeness of the boy king. Once the final lid was in position, Akasin Amun placed a miniature wreath, the Wreath of Victory, around the sculpted vulture and cobra, protecting her husband's forehead. The tiny wreath commemorated the god Osiris's victory over his enemies. As the wreath was positioned, a priest recited, Thy father Atum binds for thee this beautiful wreath of vindication on thy brow. Live, beloved of the gods, mayest thou live forever. With that, 
Heavy the stone lid of the sarcophagus was slid into place. The sad party of mourners walked slowly up the steps of the tomb into the blinding sunlight. As soon as the mourners left the tomb, a team of workmen hurried into the burial chamber to assemble the panels of three nested shrines around the sarcophagus as an overseer watched. When their work was completed, they were replaced by masons who constructed a plaster wall sealing the burial chamber from the rest of the tomb. The statue used for the opening of the mouth ceremony and its twin were placed in front of the wall, guarding their king. The last objects for the tomb, chariots, chests of linen, ebony footstools, were quickly carried into the antechamber by servants. Watched all the while, lest the pharaoh's treasures be stolen from him. Now the antechamber was sealed by the masons, the wet plaster stamped with the seal of the royal necropolis, a jackal over nine bound captives, the nine traditional enemies of Egypt. Even in death, Tutankhamun was victorious. Ankhesen Amun's long day was not yet over. A ritual last meal in honor of Tutankhamun's victory over death had to be eaten at the entrance to the tomb. The participants wore brightly colored pectorals made of flowers and beads sewn into a papyrus collar. Normally the meal was eaten by the family of the deceased, but in this instance, Ankhus and Amun, Tutankhamun's last living relative, was joined by the palace officials, Pentu, Usermont, I, I's wife, T, and General Horemeb. The servants brought a banquet of sheep, four different kinds of duck, three different kinds of geese, all washed down by considerable quantities of wine, poured from an elegant long neck vase planted with blue lotus petals. But none present were thinking about the meal. They pondered their futures. Who could have known the two of the men eating together would become kings of Egypt, and, within a very short while, one of the two women would be dead. When the meal was completed, servants ritually broke the dishes, cups, and beautiful wine jar, and placed the fragments along with the bones of the meat and fowl inside large storage jars. Then they swept the area with brooms and placed the brooms in the jars. The jars were sealed, carried to a nearby pit that had been dug and buried. The funeral was over. We actually have the broken dishes, collars, and brooms from the last meal. They're in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. There is indeed a surgical papyrus that instructs physicians whom to treat and whom not. Painted on Tutankhamun's tomb wall are scenes of the funeral procession and the opening of the mouth ceremony. Of course, we have the treasures from Tutankhamun's tomb, but we also have x-rays of his skull. But before we can get into the evidence of his murder, we must first understand what brought him to this moment. We must understand the evolution of Egyptian society, religion, and its pharaohs. The next chapter is Egypt 101, a crash course in the history of Egypt that made the murder of a pharaoh possible. Stick with it and you'll see the forces develop that bent Egypt until it snapped.